0: Hi guys, welcome to Oasis. I'm excited to be here with you tonight for our third week in the Mosaic series. Uh, my name is Jana. As Eric already said, I'm the Student Ministry Worship Pastor here at Grace Point. Um, and one of the questions that I get asked the most often since I've lived here is, "Are you a student? Do you go to SDSU?" And every time I'm like, "No, I don't. I work at Grace Point, and it's awesome." But everybody assumes I'm a student. But I thought tonight as I um, kick off, I would tell you guys a story about my time as a student. Um, And so I graduated in December of 2017 um, from Indiana Wesleyan University in Indiana, where I was raised, where I grew up. My family all went to school, loved it. That's why I went. Um, But I double majored for my undergrad in applied music, focusing on voice, and then in Christian worship. So I had this cool, like, classical music Degree And then like also Christian worship, Bible, theology and stuff, which fits really perfectly with what I'm doing now. So that's definitely God ordained to make that all happen. Um, But some of you have maybe are experiencing this now or you've already experienced this if you graduated or maybe you're an underclassman and you won't get this, but someday you might experience this. Um, but usually when you get to the end of your program, you take like a senior capstone class or like a final senior class to kind of wrap all of your major together and finish it off. And so I had to take two because I was a double major. Um, and they were both really interesting. Um, but specifically in my um, music capstone class, what our professor decided was the most important thing for us to do to prove that we had finished our studies as music students was to write a master's level thesis paper which we're bachelor's students, some associates even, and we had to do a master's level thesis paper, which is like a 30 to like 35 page paper where you pick a topic um, and then you try to, uh, you take a stance and then you try to do research and either prove or disprove the stance that you had, kind of like the scientific formula. Um, And so we as music students had to pick something that was music related, um, that was maybe along the lines of the career path we wanted to go into or what we planned to do. And I, as a first semester senior, still had no idea what I wanted to do. I didn't have a call. Well, I hadn't received my call to ministry yet. I was just kind of floating around aimlessly trying to figure it out um, as a senior. So that was fun. Um, But my junior and senior year, I got randomly really interested in massage therapy. Super random. Well, not super random. I was in a car accident in high school and like, it was prescribed that I like do chiropractic care and massage to like work through the whiplash and all that stuff and whatever. So I had been like, getting massages and going to the chiropractor regularly since high school. Um, but I thought, I don't know how I came up with it, but I thought, why don't I study and do my paper on the, the effects of massage and relaxation therapies on the performing body. And I was specifically going to look at performing musicians, actors, and athletes. And I thought, this will be great. That's fun. I'm kind of interested in it. I thought maybe, like, maybe I would get a certification in massage therapy. and I could do it on the side and make some extra money. I'm not doing that. Still could be kind of cool. But, <laughs> but so I was like, OK, this is my topic. And so we had like the first two weeks of class to kind of decide on our topic, what it would be. And then the first six to 10 pages of this paper was for you to write and present why you picked the topic, how you plan to do your research, what you were going to try to prove um, and kind of just set it up. So in a matter of a month, I picked my topic and I wrote those papers that, that first like 10 pages and this counted towards the final paper, which was super nice. I didn't have to write all 30 pages at once, praise the Lord. Um, and so I I wrote it, I turned it into my professor, she was like, yeah, your topic's good, go for it, this will be really interesting, she was like, yeah, go for it, so I was like, okay, cool, so then we had like four weeks to do research and all these things, so I'm going to the library, I'll be honest, it was the first time I went to the library, (laughs) my senior year to do this paper, just not, didn't go to the library, so I was going to the library, I was looking for stuff, I was searching online, and I was finding nothing, Like, nothing that fit the topic, nothing that talked about massage therapy and relaxation and like musicians, and there was some stuff on athletes, but not a ton. And so I was like halfway through the semester at this point, and I went to my professor and I was like, look, I'm not finding anything, like what do I do? Is it too late to change my topic? Can I do that? Do I want to do that? Should I do that? And she basically just said, figure it out. She's like, you got it, just, you know, expand your word searches and you'll be fine. And I was like, okay, cool, that sounds great. So I expanded my word searches and just started looking for random things, anything related to massage therapy. I was like, I'll just take anything at this point. And I found three articles that were usable. Now, my classmates had like 20 to 30 articles, peer reviewed, like all that stuff. They had a ton of stuff. I had three. And all they talked about was this one random, like, kind of rare thing that happens where sometimes the muscles in your neck can get really tight and tense up to the point that they prevent your vocal folds from, like, rubbing against each other so you can't speak. And all they did was talk about that and talk about how there was some random therapy that someone had started doing where they massage the neck and then these people, like, regained their voice. So it's like, okay, I have one topic. I have three articles that somehow I have to stretch this into 20 pages of content. I did it. It was probably the worst thing I've ever written. I was so redundant. There was, there was nothing there. But somehow I wrote 20 pages and I turned it into my professor and she knew where I was at. She knew I wasn't finding anything. So she was really lenient, thankfully. And she was like, it needs some work. Uh, Like you said, a lot of repetitive stuff, but like, I know you're having a hard time. So just like, fix it and i was like yeah i'll, I'll fix it um sure i'll do that <laughs> and so so I, I do that and then we get to like the last couple weeks of the semester where we're supposed to be finishing this paper and the last 10 pages of the paper are supposed to be um like restate your you know what your topic was why you picked it like talk about the research you did, what you found, and then present a case for what someone should do after you if they were to continue on this topic. So for another 10 pages, I just spouted off nonsense, basically, and talked about how I couldn't find anything, and there was no research on it. And basically just encourage people that, hey, you should do case studies, you should like look into this because I think it's significant. But at that point, I didn't think it was significant at all. So somehow I wrote a 33-page paper that said absolutely nothing at all except for, hey, this sucked and I don't know what I'm doing. Basically, that's what the paper said. And so I turned it in at the end of the semester and... I got a decent grade, it was passable, it was fine, Um, but I turned it in, got my grade back, I cried when I saw my grade, I was like, I'm going to pass, it's fine. I cried, I felt like I'd lost like a thousand pounds, I like walked a little taller all of a sudden, I wasn't hunched over, and I passed the class, and I graduated, and now I'm here. So the story all ended up fine. So praise God for that, he is more than sufficient. Um, but tonight we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. And so I'm going to go over here and uncover this now. Because I know that last week ben and waited and freaked you all out that he had forgotten to do it. And like people were texting him, reminding him. And he like intentionally came back later and did it. Um, I don't need these. So we're looking at the Gospel of Luke tonight. And the reason I tell this story, it's going to tie in, I promise, is that the Gospel of Luke um, is kind of similar to my process of doing this master's level thesis paper. A little bit. There's a tie-in. But let's set a foundation first and talk a little bit about who Luke was and why he chose to write and how he wrote. And so Luke, um, this guy, he's a a doctor. He's a physician. He's well-established. He's an academic. Like, He is um, established. And he actually is believed to be to have become the personal physician um, to Paul, the Apostle Paul, who traveled around after Jesus had left and was spreading the gospel and teaching and helping the early church to develop. So Luke is this established man, he's well respected, he's like important in his community. Um, Something significant about him is that he was actually a Gentile. Um, And he's the only Gentile to have written in the New Testament. And maybe you don't know what that means, but um, in the Old Testament, God called a specific group of people to be his select people, his chosen, the nation of Israel, and they became the Jewish people. Uh, The race, the religion, the heritage, it was all wrapped up together. And so Gentile literally just means anyone that's not a Jew. So probably most of us would be Gentiles. Maybe some of you are from Jewish descent and you would be a Jew. Um, But in the Bible, prior prior to Jesus, Jews weren't looked at in a favorable light or um, Gentiles weren't looked at in favorable light, excuse me. The Jews were God's chosen people. They were the elect. They were the um, religiously superior, superior, and they treated the Gentiles very poorly. And so for Luke to be an established, respected man and also be a Gentile and to write a book that later is part of our Bible is fairly significant. So with that in, in mind about Luke, um, then we turn to ask, okay, well, why did Luke write his gospel? Because if you've been following along with this Mosaic series, if you've read the Gospels before, you know that all four of them basically tell the exact same story, and there's just subtleties of differences. I mean, that's the point of why we're doing this series, is to see those differences to get a bigger picture of who Jesus was. And so it's believed that Mark actually wrote his Gospel first, and then Matthew followed. And so if there's already two circulating accounts of the story of Jesus, why did Luke decide to write Um, And thankfully, he tells us in the first four verses of his gospel. So we're going to jump in um, right there. This will come up on the screen behind me, and I'm going to read from the New Living Translation right now. But Luke says this. He says, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us with the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an account um, an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. So he's writing this to Theophilus, who is a Roman official, who is likely proceeding over the trial of Paul when he's been arrested, and he's saying, "Hey, I've done the research. I looked into um, the accounts. Like I've talked to the people. I've brought all this like research together, and here it is. I want to give you an accurate account in defense for my friend Paul." And we don't really pick up on this in the English language, but these first four verses are written in very refined, very academic, classical style of speaking um, that would have been reflective of, of who Luke was as an academic, a doctor, a respected person. Um, and that's likely how Mark and Matthew already had written his gospel, so it would have been similar. But the unique thing that Luke decides to do is that even though he starts in an academic refined language, is that the rest of the gospel he doesn't write that way. And again, we don't really pick up on that in English, but he chooses to intentionally write in the language, the vernacular of the village, of the people, of kind of that street language. And his intent is that even though he's sending this to Theophilus, he knows that other people are going to read it, and he wants them to be able to understand and grasp the story of Jesus. And so with Luke having this intention in mind, there's two kind of uh, things that come out of this. First, Uh, Luke is the most comprehensive gospel. He documents the story of Jesus all the way from the Annunciation of John the Baptist to Jesus' ascension, and he does so in a way that people are able to follow along, they're able to understand, even the people that are uneducated. Secondly, it's also the most universal gospel. And this, I mean that it's, he tells the stories of more people than had been told before, So Luke was a Gentile, so he tells the story of Gentiles and he paints them in a favorable light and this would have been significant because probably they would have never heard stories, their own stories, presented in a positive light where they're not made out to be the bad guys. But then also, Luke repeatedly tells the stories of women and children and the social outcasts and he redeems and he tells these stories of people that no one else would have told their stories. So with all of this in mind, we kind of set the foundation for who Luke was, why he wrote, and how he wrote. And so tonight, we're going to take kind of a master's level thesis approach to looking at this. And so I'm going to give a thesis statement for tonight, a big idea, if you will. And it's simply this. It's a Jesus message and mission was for all persons. And so as we go through the book of Luke tonight, we're going to be doing the research. We're looking for proof that this thesis statement is true. And I think that there's two pretty clear defenses for this um, that we're going to look at. So the first defense is this. It's that Jesus turned their world order, their cultural norms, upside down. That's the first thing that Jesus is doing as told by Luke. So Luke drops in. Again, he starts with the annunciation of John the Baptist. And he begins to tell that story. And the significance of that story is that John the Baptist was born to a very, very old couple who had been barren, who had no children, they thought, this is impossible, we're never going to have kids, this is out of the question, and God comes and says, hey, no, I'm going to give you a son, and not only that, but I'm going to call him, and I'm going to intentionally appoint him to be the man that makes the way, that prepares the way for the Lord. So that's the first unusual, significant, world-changing things that that God does right away in the story, but then Jesus enters into the equation— And we're about to enter into that Advent Christmas season. So hopefully over the next couple weeks, whether you're here or you're at home or maybe you can read it on your own, you're going to hear the story of Jesus' birth. So I'm not going to dwell there for very long um, because we're going to get it a ton basically from now until, who knows, it could go into 2021 at this point. People are putting up their Christmas trees already and no judgment, but it's real early this year. And that's okay, that's okay. But so the significance of, of, of how Jesus is born is that he's born to an unmarried virgin teenager who's conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he's born in a stable and was greeted by lowly shepherds. And the reason that this is significant is, is even going back to week one, when Sean looked at the book of Matthew, he talked about Jesus as a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And so these people had been given these prophecies throughout time to say this is who your Messiah is, your Savior is coming, your King is coming to this world, and they built up this anticipation and this expectation of what that's going to look like. And then here comes this baby born in the the most bizarre, like, way, a virgin teenager and, like, born in a barn, basically. Like, this is not what they would have expected for their Messiah and what this was going to look like. Jesus didn't come in a grander, king-like, messiah way, being heralded in by trumpets and, you know, armies and people cheering and celebrating. He came in this lowly, tiny, insignificant, seemingly insignificant way. And so before Jesus has done any type of ministry, any type of teaching, he is turning things upside down and breaking apart cultural norms and expectations, And so as we continue through Luke, again, he's kind of gone chronologically. And unfortunately, the Bible in general doesn't tell many stories about what Jesus was like as a kid or a teenager or a young adult, which I think is really unfortunate because I think it would be so interesting to know what Jesus was like at, like, 13. Like, every week I'm with middle school and high schoolers, and I just, like, sometimes wonder, I'm like, was Jesus as, like, squirrely and angsty as, like, they are, like, at 13? Was he like that? Weird? Probably not. He's, he was Jesus, but maybe someday I'll get to ask and find out. So we don't get many stories about him in that kind of age range, but we really drop in on Jesus' life and ministry when he's about 30 years old. And the first thing that happens to Jesus to kind of kick off this story of who he is is that He's baptized by John. Again, John the Baptist who's been called by God to prepare the way for the Lord. Jesus goes to him to be baptized just like tons of other people are going. Um, And this amazing God moment happens where the Holy Spirit literally comes down upon him in a way that people have never seen before. And a voice from heaven speaks audibly that people have never heard before and says, this is my son, I'm well pleased. Like, he's gonna do amazing things. And Jesus has this like, what we would probably describe as like a spiritually high like God moment. And if you've ever experienced one of those moments, like sometimes we can be really zealous and then passionate and like we want to dive into the mission of God and we're like, let's go. And I would imagine that that's like maybe what would be expected of Jesus' story, but that's literally not what happens. It's so bizarre. Instead, immediately after he's baptized, immediately after he's given his call to ministry by God, called to go and do amazing works, he's led into the wilderness by the devil where for 40 days and 40 nights he's tempted. Like Every second of the day for six weeks, the devil is tempting him with every possible temptation, every possible sin, every possible human desire. And because he's Jesus, he has the amazing capability to say no to everything and to speak out against the devil and and to set this foundation of what his life is gonna be like and the example that he's even gonna be for us. And I like to think of that moment as actually like Jesus' first victory over Satan um, that kind of, I think projects us to see what's going to happen later. But then so right after this testing, like after he's done, he's been tested by the devil, like he's in the clear, he's good to go, then he begins to go and to teach um, and to do, again, completely unexpected, radical things. And as he's going, he begins to call people to join him, to come alongside him on his mission, on his ministry, and he's calling the least likely and the least expected people to join him. The 12 um, men that eventually become his disciples, his closest like ministry partners are like the left behind, the not chosen. They're doing the work of their fathers because they weren't chosen by the other like leaders and teachers to follow him. They're fishermen and they're tax collectors and they're like Roman rebels. Like they're the least people. They're not the celebrity pastor. They're not the like top-notch Christian. They're just nobodies. And God says, come, I want you to join me. And Jesus invites him into what he's doing. And then he begins to to take on the role of prophet and teacher and healer. And Luke tells story after story of how he's living this out. In the midst of this, the Pharisees and the teachers and the leaders, the religious people of the time are like, what is going on? This guy's coming. He's shaking things up. He's saying things that we've taught are wrong for centuries. And they begin to question him and and doubt him and, and really put pressure on him to see if he's legitimate. And in every instance, he responds with wisdom and understanding. In chapter 6, there's this story that's described as the Sermon on the Plain. And maybe you've heard of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, which is quoted as Jesus' most famous sermon. But the Sermon on the Plain is different, but it has very similar content because the message of Jesus is the message of Jesus. And what Jesus does in this sermon is that he's blessing the poor and he's calling out the rich and the well-off. He's challenging the previous teachings on what it looks like to love your enemy and uh, to judge others and what it means to produce fruit. I want to read just a couple of what he says, but he says this, he says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Do not judge and And you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. And maybe we've heard this before and we don't know the significance of all of these things and what he's doing, but Jesus is literally preaching the opposite of what the religious leaders had been teaching for so long. And if you want to get into more of what those implications were, what that looked like, Ben actually talked about this specifically from the Sermon of Mount this summer when we did our Malachi series. And so, um, Micah, what did we do? Micah. I don't remember. One of the M's. (laughs) I forgot for a second. But you can go back to just previously this summer and and listen to that sermon and see the significance of what Jesus was doing um, in that moment. But the point that I wanna make in this first defense is that in the things that Jesus taught and the people that he invited in, Jesus was destroying the way that society had worked for them. So that's our first defense. That's our first defense towards our thesis that the mission and message of Jesus is for all people. The second defense is this. It's that Jesus loved, healed, and redeemed the outcast and the lost. The, the gospel of Luke tells so many stories of Jesus healing and redeeming and meeting with the outcast and the lost people. And probably because like Luke was particularly interested in these things, being in a doctor... But one of the first stories that, um, of what Jesus does, the way that he heals, is in Luke, I almost said Matthew. In Luke chapter 4, it says this, it says, Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. In chapter five, it says that Jesus heals a leper. He reached out his hand and touched the man and said, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Again, in chapter five, Jesus heals the man on the mat. And if you haven't heard this story, there's a paralyzed man who can't get to Jesus and his friends are so desperate for his healing that they literally climb up on the top of a building and destroy a roof so that they can lower their friend down before Jesus to be healed to receive that blessing. In chapter 7 of Luke, he raises a widow's son. And then in chapter 8, he brings back Jairus' daughter who's died, who was ill, and takes time to stop and heal a woman who's had an issue with blood and was outcast, pushed aside from her society because of her illness. And I could keep going on and on because there's so many stories of Jesus' healings um, in the Gospel of Luke. Not only that, but he's casting out demons. He sends demons out of so many different people and restores them back to their full, like, place and what they are. Jesus is healing, and then he's meeting with the outcast. He gives time and attention to the people that society has pushed aside and said, you're not important, you're not valuable. We don't want you here. He meets with people that have been discriminated against because of their gender, because of their afflictions, because of their social status, and because of their race. Um, Every week we do a podcast. It's one of my favorite things that we do, it's really fun. But on Tuesday, just this past week, we talked about women in ministry, um, which was super awesome because I have investment in that. Um, (laughs) I mean, it makes sense. But what I love about even just the conversation that we had is that as a Wesleyan church, we believe in women in ministry, obviously, because Jesus was an example of calling women into ministry and to redeeming where they are. Like he, part of what he did is that he broke down cultural prejudices against women and redeemed them and gave them value and worth. One of the first stories um, of this in the book of Luke is that Jesus allows a sinful woman to anoint him with oil In chapter 7, it says um, this, or, or she's come, he's meeting at the house with, like, religious leaders, and they're asking him questions, and he's teaching, and this woman comes, and she pours her oil on him, and she's bowing down before his feet, basically kind of being a disruption, doing something she's not supposed to be doing, she's not supposed to be touching him, let alone, like, you know, kissing his feet and drying it with her hair, like, she's doing very odd, unusual things, and the leaders, the men that are there say, Jesus, why are you not rebuking her? Why are you not telling her off? Like she's doing these things that are wrong. And this is what Jesus says in um, chapter seven, verse 44. He says, I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In a moment where Jesus could have pushed aside another person that society pushed inside and said, you're wrong. You're invaluable. I don't want you here. And said, he said, no, your sins are forgiven. Your love is important to me. I value it. And I want you here. And I'm thankful for you. And he redeemed her value in that moment. Not only did he heal women and redeem their value, but he invited them into his ministry. Like we know that Jesus had the 12 disciples. We hear about them a lot, but like he had like tons of other people who regularly followed him and walked with him. And many of those were women. Luke specifically names several. He says there was Mary Magdalene from whom seven demons had come out and Joanna, the wife of Cheza, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So not only did Jesus invite them into the mission, invite them into the message, allow them to do ministry, but they were supporting him financially. And the significance of that is that women weren't allowed to have financial means on their own at the time. Their value was in the relationship that they had with their husband or with their father. And so for these women to even have financial means to give is significant, and they still chose to give it to Jesus to support him in his ministry. Not only was he redeeming and restoring the place of women, but he was also meeting with tax collectors, with sinners, with people who were shunned because of things that they did or uh, roles that they had. He was meeting with them, eating with them. And then at one point he tells us the story of a good Samaritan. And it's a story, but he tells it with the intended purpose to say, hey, the racial barriers that you've had set up in your culture do not reflect the heart of God. And I want you to care for and love every single person. In the midst of all of this, Jesus continues to be questioned and doubted and made to be wrong by religious leaders. And when they come to him and ask, why do you eat with sinners? Why do you heal these people that are not worth your time? And I love what he says in Luke 5. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The second defense of our thesis is that Jesus was revealing that his message is for all persons by meeting with, healing, and redeeming the set aside. That's the second defense. That's what Jesus was about. And it was this very world order shaking, um, turning things upside down nature of Jesus that brought him the enemies that would kill him. Luke describes in, in good detail the final week of Jesus' life when he shares the final meal with his disciples, when he goes to the garden to pray before the Father, when Judas betrays him and comes and he's arrested and then he's tried and he's put to death by a cross. And in the midst of all of this, as Jesus hangs on a cross, dying, taking every single sin of every person, experiencing probably the worst thing that any person has ever felt, he continues to be focused on others. He cries out and he prays to God. He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. While the people are mocking him and screaming at him and have put him to death and turned their back on him and they're casting lots for his things, he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And he wasn't the only person to be crucified that day. There were two criminals on either side of him. One joins him with the crowd, mocking him, saying, who are you, why won't you save yourself, blah, blah, blah. And the other criminal says, no, don't you see this is God? There's something special happening here. And he asked Jesus, look, he didn't say this, but he's basically like, I'm a criminal, and I know my place, and I know I'm dying, but all I ask is that you'll remember me in heaven. Remember me and your kingdom, And Jesus says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. In his dying moments, Jesus is still loving and redeeming others and turning the pre-established world order upside down. And then we know the story that Jesus died and was buried and resurrected and that the church was built out of that. But from the very beginning to the very end of Jesus' life, he's putting others first and he's caring and loving and redeeming and turning things upside down and changing everything that everyone had ever expected. And so my, def- my thesis again tonight is that Jesus' message is for all people. And I think that Luke shows that really, really well in how he interacted with people, how he loved, how he cared, how he healed, and how he challenged the people that were oppressing and making life very difficult for people. So that's it. That's the story of Jesus through the eyes of Luke, through how he pins it. But the amazing thing about Jesus is that even though he came in a specific context at a certain time, when certain things were happening, his message and his mission is still for all people. It's still for each and every single one of us today, and he's still turning world orders upside down. In Luke, it didn't matter the ailment, the social class, the race, the sin, It didn't matter what people were experiencing, what they thought, what the world thought of them. Jesus came for each and every single one of them and he's come for each and every single one of us in this room tonight. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past, years ago or yesterday or this morning. It doesn't matter what the world says about you, the value that it gives to you. It doesn't matter your sex, your race, your illness, your disability or literally anything that you can think of. Jesus wants you And Jesus came for you. And I know that to be true and I can say that to you tonight with confidence because I know that I've experienced that. As a high school student, I saw Jesus come and show up for me when I felt unloved and worthless and the only way I was going to be valued is through the relationships that I had. And as a college student with depression and anxiety and feeling like the world was, wasn't worthwhile and not wanting to live and having no purpose and no identity, Jesus showed up and said, I love you and I choose you and you are my daughter and my message is for you. And it's changed every part of my life. And he continues to heal me and restore me and I know that he can do that for you tonight no matter how you feel about yourself, no matter what the world has told you to believe about yourself Jesus, Jesus came for you and He chooses you and He wants you. And I want to invite you into that forgiveness, into that freedom, into that acceptance and that love tonight. And so as the band that comes up and gets ready, I want to set us up for that moment. And something that we do every single week that we don't always remind you of is that we have a prayer team that stands around the room. And so if you're on that team tonight, I invite you to go and stand. If you're any one of our leaders and you want to stand as well. I invite you to, tonight, if you wanna step into that acceptance of Jesus, to rest in the reality that he chooses you, he came for you, his mission, his vision, his passion is for you, I invite you to go and pray with one of them, to begin a relationship with Jesus. And if you wanna come and pray with me, I'll be over there too. But don't continue to rest in the worthlessness, the emptiness, whatever it may be that you feel, because Jesus wants you. One last thing, Erica already talked about it, but one of the things that God calls us to do is to practice baptism and to take this moment when we've accepted Jesus into our life, when we've made him Lord, when we want to give our all to him, to to come before God and before each other and declare, I'm sold out. I am for God. I am his. And we intentionally wanted to give you guys another opportunity this semester. If If you've been thinking about baptism, maybe you haven't, maybe this is the first time you're hearing about it tonight. I seriously... I encourage you to go to that class tonight. Ben's going to be there. He'll give you any information you need. He'll answer any question you might have. Um, even if you just want to learn a little bit and maybe you're not ready to commit, just go. Just go. And so, as we close tonight with one final song, I invite you to take a moment, whether you have invited Jesus into your life before or you haven't. Um, to just rest in that presence that he wants you, he calls you, and he's redeeming you and restoring you if you simply let him. And so I'll pray as we um, finish tonight and transition back into worship through music. Father, I thank you for the story of Jesus. I thank you for who he is and what he's done. I thank you for the picture that we get to see of him in Luke, that he's literally for every single person that he wants to redeem and restore every aspect of who we are that there's no longer any type of gatekeeping or distance between Jesus and us but that if we simply step into what he has for us step into the love that he has for us we can experience not only the fullness of life that he has for us but also the eternity spent in your presence drawing near being close with you being as you designed and created us to be so I pray tonight that assurance over people. I pray that you'd help us to rest in that reality as we even leave this place. Um, but we thank you and we praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you've already done this semester, what you wanna do tonight, and even what we know you're still gonna do over the next couple weeks and into next year and, and even to pass that. We thank you and we praise you for who you are. And it's in your holy and precious name that I pray. Amen.